Hi, everybody. How you doing? Well, that's awesome. This is Charlie O'Connor here for another episode of Other Stuff, the music and movie show that we try to do once a week, but last week we missed, unfortunately, where we basically just spend an hour diving into a movie that my co-host hasn't seen or an album that my co-host hasn't seen, and then the other person does the reverse. So this week, we have back on the show for probably like the third or fourth time at this point, our good friend Kelly Hinkle. Kelly, thanks for joining us. It me. How are you today, Charlie? Uh, doing okay. I realized that I didn't eat lunch, so uh-uh. I wasn't feeling good, and I didn't know why. And then I remembered, oh, I didn't eat lunch today. Mm. In my def- in my defense, though, I don't usually eat breakfast, but I ate breakfast today. So uh-huh. that's, what, that's what threw me. Where you know. I wasn't hungry at noon like I usually am. And then when I was hungry at 2.30, that's usually the time of day where I think, I'll just wait till dinner. (laughs) But (laughs) I didn't realize that by 3.30, I was going to not feel good at all because I hadn't eaten five hours. Oh, there's time. We've all determined that time doesn't exist anymore. So this is this is kind of true. Yeah. I'm not going to I can argue with you there. You eat when the mood strikes you now. That's how we live. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. Just because it's dark out doesn't mean you can't eat, you know, lunch. No, never. (laughs) It can be 2 a.m. And if I'm feeling like a grilled cheese sandwich, it's grilled cheese sandwich time. Exactly. My friend, or Micah, you know Micah. Micah um, calls, like, if you have, like, a snack after dinner, like a before bedtime snack, he calls it night lunch. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And apparently it's, like, a family thing. He's always called it night lunch since he was a kid. And he just, like, says it with a straight face. And I'm like, pardon? Night lunch? He's like, yeah, like, night lunch. A, like, you don't know what that is? It's a thing. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> it's, it's a McCurdy family staple. Yeah. All right. Well, we will, uh, without further ado, get to our show. Uh, as usual, we, uh, we go through a movie and we go through an album. We always kick it off with the movie. So this week... It was Kelly's turn to pick the movie, my turn to pick the album. So our first point of discussion is the movie uh, Inside uh, Lewin Davis by uh, by the Coen brothers, released in 2013. Uh, stars Oscar Isaac, who only proceeded to get like substantially bigger after this movie. Like mm-hmm. this was, he was, I think he was a thing, but he's definitely become a much bigger thing since this movie came out. And probably this movie is part of the reason for that. I think it's um, generally considered his breakout role. Okay, I mean that's fair. The, the yeah. Coen Brothers are obviously like extremely big shots in the you know in the movie industry, and if they pick you as your star, you're probably good. Um, so yeah, he's gotten bigger. Obviously, he's been in the the Star Wars movies. He's been in a bunch of other things too. Um, also had Carrie Mulligan, who uh, who I really like. I really like her as an actress. Um, John Goodman's in it. Justin Timberlake's in it. But it definitely, the whole movie is centered around Oscar Isaac's character, uh, Lewin Davis. So this was Kelly's movie. So I will now give Kelly uh, the opportunity to just give a, a, a brief plot description for anybody who hasn't seen the movie. So this is a movie, definitely one of those movies, that I guess you would call like a character study. Like Charlie said, this movie is about Lewin Davis. And it's a week in his life. Um in which we kind of learn about who he is as a person. He's a musician. um, And from start to finish, we kind of go on this journey with him where he starts to finally accept the fact that he's not going to make it as a professional musician. Like this isn't going to be the way that he makes a living. And there are a number of reasons why. Um, 
and a number of things that happened that led him to this place. But um, yeah, it's like a very condensed timeline in the movie. And you're just kind of going along with him as he is kind of going from, okay, maybe I can do this to this is definitely not going to happen over the course of a week's time. That's it. I think, yeah. 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 No, I think that's good. I think it's interesting. You know, a lot of the movies we've done so far, not all, particularly some of the ones I've done with, uh, with Bill have have lacked a traditional plot <laughs> <laughs> or, or it try they try to have plots but they're just not important but this one's interesting because I agree it's it, things happen and there's definitely you know a rising and falling and a climax type parts of the movie but it's not there's not necessarily like an obvious narrative mm-hmm. it's more just you're following this guy along and then themes start to present themselves and conflicts start to present themselves over time but it's not like you know you find out early in the movie there's a bad guy and then there's a problem and then you solve the problem or you don't solve the problem and then there's a coda like it was it's very much just you're kind of along for the ride mm-hmm. and i personally like this kind of movie i mean there's I, th- I feel like the kind of movie that you just described, like, you know, there's a exposition and a denouement and then a rising action and all these kinds of, like, general ways that you structure something as far as storytelling goes. Those are obviously good and fun. Um, but I feel like there's something to be said for the kind of movie that doesn't kind of lay it all out for you in that format. It kind of makes you think a little bit about what the movie is about and what the point of it is because like obviously when you have a bad guy like if you're watching a bond movie you know what the point of the movie is like he's going to defeat some kind of bad guy or save some person or whatever and that's great but it's not it doesn't give you a lot to think about you see the problem they tell you what the problem is you see them fix the problem it's fun and good and everyone enjoys it but this kind of movie you kind of have to think like okay why are you showing me this character? Why is he interesting? Am I meant to care about him? Am I not meant to care about him? It just kind of makes you think a little bit more. And I, I like that kind of movie a lot. Yeah, and, and I think what's cool about this movie too um, is that it does, like even though it is kind of just a, you know, a week in the life sort of movie, it does start to kind of come together as a more traditional type movie in terms of like that sort of rising action, falling action. Like the whole thing kind of, I feel like comes to a head when he goes to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has that like impromptu, basically impress me session to the guy who's, uh, you know, who runs the, the, the concert venue in Chicago. And like, that's not something where, you know, five minutes of the movie, you'd have any idea that that's going to be the the peak of the movie. Like when, you know, that's the turning point, essentially, that everything was building to. But when you're in it, you realize like, oh, yeah, this is obviously the big moment of the movie. Yeah, that's true. It definitely is because it is, it's kind of that moment where you can, can kind of see in his brain that he's like, all right, that's it. Not going to happen. And then he goes back home and tries to resume something resembling a normal life which he fails at because that's kind of what he does (laughs) (laughs) and i think too uh you know it's something and this is something i think we'll talk about a little bit later is just the idea of the coen brothers like and the Mm -hmm. types of movies they make um you know they're they're obviously you know 
very very popular in hollywood they're they're viewed as you know real artists in terms of how they approach the form but there are definitely certain things that they you know certain i wouldn't call it a trope but just certain you know certain things that they they lean on that you know recur in their movies and the idea of like a protagonist who just nothing goes right for definitely pops up a lot in their movies oh yeah very much on display here that's absolutely true it is i think that this you can definitely if you've seen a coen brothers movie or two like you can tell that this is a coen brothers movie but like for me and this is something that we've discussed a couple of times now is i like that sort of thing like i like the auteur mode of movie making where it's someone's singular vision start to finish and it's presented in exactly the way that the director and the writer and you know all of it is one person or in this case two people's vision and for me I just I don't know I something about that interests me a lot so this the Coen brothers definitely fall into that and that's probably why I like their movies a lot yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. So I guess to kick it off, like, what what are your thoughts on this movie? Why did you pick this movie? Why did you want to run through it for the show? So this is one of my favorite movies generally, but not a movie that I watch very often. Um, and I think that this, for me, this is the kind of movie that... And I, I'm assuming it's intended to be this. It makes you feel real feelings. Like it's not just entertaining um, or fun or whatever, which are like kind of surface level feelings. Like I feel like watching this movie, you kind of feel like sad in your soul watching this movie because it's just... And I, I think a lot of this has to do with Oscar Isaac's incredibly good performance um but you can feel the pain in this man's life and you can see it on his face and you can hear it in his voice and it's just like you know but that's uh, for me that's like that's what I want from a film like I want you to make me feel things and this movie absolutely does it and also for me um I forget what it was that made this pop into my head but the fact that this movie centers so heavily on music I thought it would be something that you might find interest in um and for me like I don't particularly like folk music and Lewin Davis is a folk musician um but I find the music in this movie like beautiful I love the music in this movie um so that's kind of why I wanted you to watch it and I knew that you had seen other Coen Brothers movies so I thought it would be interesting to see what you thought about this one yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and um, and I did I did really like the the music aspect of it. I remember when this movie came out, um, you know, I didn't see it, but I remember reading think pieces on the movie because a lot of think pieces were being published on websites that I read because I'm a music mm-hmm. fan. So you know, this was this was the opportunity for those sites to write about like the early '60s folk scene and then debate about the nature of this movie and whether they presented it correctly, whether they presented it incorrectly, things like that. So I definitely remember it coming out, but um, but yeah, I I 100% agree with you on like this movie really does make you feel. Like I watched this one on Tuesday night around like 
maybe 12:30 in the morning because I wasn't tired and I was just like, well, I have a busy day tomorrow, so rather than <laughs> having to try to fit this movie in, I might as well just watch it now while I have some downtime. And I it, I got done and I just didn't really want to go to sleep. I just kind of wanted to like sit on my couch and think about the movie for a little <laughs> bit before I went to sleep. And I think it kind of goes back to what you're saying because it really does make you, you know, and, and this will sound like artsy and pretentious or whatever, but it just sort of makes you like, and I think good movies can do this. They sort of just make you reflect on like deeper things, mm-hmm. not just about your life, but just about like, the concept of life as a whole and like the human condition. And there's definitely a lot of, not in this movie about like just the futility of it all. Mm -hmm. And you know, what is, what is it? And I mean, I'm lucky, extremely lucky in that what I'm good at, I've actually been able to be moderately successful at, but like, what, what do you do if the thing that you feel like you were born to do, the world deems you not good enough at it? Like what, then what happens? And it's a really, like, it's a really tough concept to grapple with because it, then it comes down to the question of like, what is, what is, what is the meaning of your life? If everything that has imbued your life with meaning no longer has a path for you anymore. Yeah. And, 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 and I a hundred percent agree that Oscar Isaac is, is incredible in this movie. He's oh, he's so, so good. good. He's movie. so good. And the thing that like really for me gets me like emotionally is that there's this underlying current of the fact that he used to be part of a group he and his friend they were a duo and his friend killed himself and everyone tells him at every step along the way that he needs to have a partner if he wants to be successful in music and he had one and he killed himself and we never find out why we never find out much about his former partner but it's just like that idea that this was his dream and the thing that he needed to get there he had it and then it was gone instantly through no fault of his own and it's just like god like how does that not make you just like feel so sad but like in a yeah in a good way (laughs) yeah it's it is and i think like you know I, I guess I, I never disliked Oscar Isaac as an actor. Like, I, I never thought he was a bad actor. Mm-hmm. But this was the first movie I watched where um I, I came away thinking, like, holy shit, he's a really good actor. Because this isn't a role that is easy to play. And not just because, like, it's a complex role. Because, yeah, like, it's a Coen Brothers movie. Of course, it's a complex role. But, like, he doesn't talk a lot. So he sort of, like, he has to really exude his emotions through his face and through, like, physical acting, and he does an incredible job. Like, he's an extremely expressive actor, and he does it in a way that, like, isn't over the top. It's it's really believable, and I really, really like that about this movie, just the way he's able to pull you in without necessarily even saying a lot. Like, you just look at his face and you get it. Mm-hmm. This was the... The first, I mean, obviously, this was the first movie that I saw um, him in. I saw this in the theaters when it came out. Um, And I, like, to this day, despite the fact that I haven't really seen, I mean, I saw the the one Star Wars movie that he was in. um, And I saw... Ex Machina. He was that was his, right? He was in that one. I I haven't seen that. I, he, oh. I think he was, but I haven't seen it. Oh, that might be on the list, Charlie. Um, okay. and I've seen that, and I thought he was good in that. But this movie, like for me, 
if you asked me to list like I don't know my five favorite actors I would probably put him on the list and it's really on the back of this movie is kind of like where I form my opinion of him as an actor and also like the fact that he was singing live like first of all like it's annoying that you're super talented at two things. That seems unfair. Um, <laughs> Definitely. But like, you know, that can't be an easy thing to do for an actor to have to sing these songs live as you're performing them, which I don't think is a thing that happens very often when they do like singy type movies. But um, yeah, it was this movie is as good as it is because he's this good in it, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting you mentioned about the idea of like him singing live, and you know, it's. It, I I agree. Like I didn't know he sung it live, but mm-hmm. that's really cool knowing that. That at the same time, it makes sense because one thing about like the Coen Brothers obviously are very you know they're they're artists. They view yeah. themselves as artists, so they want to kind of get to the heart of whatever they're they're exploring. And the thing about like folk music, especially in this year, especially in the early 60s, was that it was very much like, you know, like you can't sell out. It has to be mm-hmm. raw. It has to be it has to be genuine. It has to be unfiltered. And like that's why when Bob Dylan moved to like the full band stuff that he lost a lot of his old fans because it was like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. you know, how dare you not be being true to folk music the way it's supposed to be? And, you know, there can be debates like crazy. Obviously, Bob Dylan wrote some amazing songs and amazing albums with the full band. But there are probably still some people out there who believe that, you know, it wasn't as pure as it was when he was just the guy with the guitar. And I feel like the Coen brothers would would view the idea of like having someone else sing Lewin Davis' songs or even have Lewin Davis like recorded in a studio and then just dub it. They mm-hmm. would make it they would think that that would make the movie less authentic. Yeah. So I, I it, it makes sense to me that they would be like, no, look, we know you can sing, so just you got to do it live. We got we got to make it real because that's the only way you're going to be able to fully inhabit this character. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If it had been done the other way, I don't think it would have been as good for sure. Because you can always tell, even when it's done really well, you can always tell when a vocal performance is kind of like being dubbed over someone doing the physical performance of it. Like you can always tell. Um so yeah, it definitely needed to be done the way that it was. But um, I'm really glad you liked this movie. Yeah, yeah, it, w- it was really good. What was your favorite bit? I think I'm stealing things from your outline. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll uh, we we can jump around. Okay. Um, there's there's no real reason like that has to be done in a certain order. So my favorite sequence by far was the dinner party sequence, and to to set the stage. Basically, you know, for people who haven't seen the movie, so he he crashes on this this like I think it's like two like university professors. Mm-hmm. He crashes on their couch at the beginning of the movie, and then he goes out and does a bunch of other stuff. And basically, he ends up as he's leaving their place, their cat gets out. So he ends up walking around the rest of the day with the, with their cat. He loses the cat, then he finds a cat. And then he goes back to drop the cat off and they're like, stay for dinner. And he's no, I don't want to stay for dinner. He's obviously not in like the best frame of mind and they make him stay and they have like a couple there with him. And it's just the most like crazy scene because it swings back and forth between like absolute hilariousness <laughs> and then just like unbelievably raw emotion and anger. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. Like, it's just one of those like, 
I only I think it's one of those scenes where I only think the Coens could do it because they they're yeah. like the only people that can just do those like have that kind of wildly different tones in the same scene and it not feel ridiculous. Like the 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 couple is showing uh, Oscar Isaac a picture of their kid and like it is a terrible picture of their kid. <laughs> It is it's such an ugly, an ugly picture of their kid. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so bad, and he's like he he tries to like lie and say like it's a beautiful kid, but you can see in his face that like he's very clearly like holy shit that is a terrible picture. And then he asks what the kid's name is, and the kid's name is is Howard, which like whatever that's fine. And then they say the la- is, is Howard Greenfung, and he's like, wait, is that that hyphenated like Green Fung? And they're like, no, just Green Fung. And he just looks at them. And he's, <laughs> You're, you're kidding, right? And, then, and they're, like, horrified that he would dare question the name Green Funk. And then, like, then he has to play a song, and he plays a song, and the wife of the, uh, the wife of the, like, the, the guy whose house it is, I guess, I guess it's their house, um, she starts singing his partner's part in the song, the one who, who killed himself, and, um, and he just loses it. Like, basically, like, he flips out, for one reason, but it's very clear the reason why he's flipping out is because someone else dared to sing his partner's part that he mm-hmm. clearly, you know, still still is devastated by the loss of his partner. And then as he's, like, about to storm out, she, like, obviously the wife is, is devastated because he just, like, reamed her out in front of all their friends. And then she comes back in with the cat. And just, and this isn't even our cat. (laughs) So he literally brought back a similar looking cat that isn't the same cat because it's not like, I think the cat is, their cat is a uh, A boy. Is is a boy. And it's very clearly there's no penis. (laughs) So, uh, so that that scene I absolutely loved. Like that was just classic, classic Coen Brothers, and it was just the the idea of like going back and forth between laughing your ass off and then just sitting back in your chair. Like holy shit, that was incredible. It is an extremely good scene, and you um, mentioned one that I really love, which is the recording of the uh, "Please, Mr. Kennedy" song. Um, oh God, yeah. Which is really funny. So, uh. Lewin apparently had a relationship with um, what's her face's character, Carrie Mulligan's character, and now she's married to someone else. This guy called Jim, which is he's played by Justin Timberlake, and they're both musicians. And Timberlake is Jim recording a song um, that's kind of like a goofy, like poppy, like very nineteen sixties goofball song about like. John Kennedy sending someone into space and they don't want to go. And Adam Driver makes an appearance in this as kind of like a backup singer for the recording session. And they have Lewin playing guitar as like a session musician, really. And the song is just hilarious. And Adam Driver is just making goofy noises the entire time. (laughs) And like even goofier faces to go along with them. And he is his role in this movie is like minuscule. Like that's pretty much it. But he absolutely steals that scene. It's so funny. And I was glad that you mentioned it because I it's like kind of like a nothing of a scene. Like it's not super significant, except that it kind of just sets the stage for Lewin to make a bad decision um, where he just takes 200 bucks instead of signing up for royalties because the song's probably going to be a hit because it's hilarious. Um, but other than that, it's just, you know, there's no real significance to it. Um, but it's 
great and it's impossible not to remember it like in my head right now the song is playing because <laughs> it's yeah ridiculous it it is and like i i had seen this this was the only scene in the movie I had seen before I watched the movie because I think after the movie came out, it just became one of those like, oh, you got to see this scene. Mm. And I remember watching it. I remember thinking it was great and getting a real kick out of it. Um, but the one part about it that I that I love, and I agree, Adam Driver is, is awesome in this scene. It's just he's so goofy and it's so dumb. It's amazing. But the one part of the scene that I absolutely love is when Justin Timberlake's like teaching Lou in the song and they're right about to start. And and Lewin looks at him and he just says, you know, not you know, not 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 trying to say anything, but like, who wrote this song? Like basically, like, <laughs> oh, this song is like utter garbage. And then Justin Timberlake looks at him with this blank face. It's like, I did. And Lewin's just like, oh shit. <laughs> and then they go right into playing the song. But it's just so good because like he thinks they're they you know. He thinks that Justin Timberlake is doing this song like just to make a buck. He's just somebody mm-hmm. else's song. Let's record it. Let's make a buck. We know how bad it is. And Justin Timberlake's no, this is this is a song I'm very proud of. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> Justin Timberlake is a surprisingly good actor, I think. It, you know, it, I go back and forth with him because he's good in this. I, I love what he did in Social Network. Yeah, he was but great. I in just that. Ha- I have trouble. I don't know if he's a good actor or if he just picks roles where he's just playing himself and it works perfectly for the movie. I just don't know. Mm, That's a good point. It's also, he's one of those people, I think because he's so famous for something else, that it's hard to watch him in a role, even if he's good in it, and not be like, hey, Justin Timberlake. Like, it's not, it's hard to let go of knowing exactly who he is. Um. Which even in this movie, like, you know, there's Justin Timberlake singing a song. Like it's hard it's hard to separate that for me when it's someone is that famous for something else. I I think that's fair. I think one of the good things about this movie and you know, in another sort of way, the social network, is that like the fact that he's it's almost like the movies take advantage of the casting. Mm. Because like the whole to me like the whole point of Justin Timberlake's character in this movie in particular is that you know he is he sort of signifies to to Lou and Davis you know the the basically the concept of like selling out the mm-hmm. idea of you know writing music to make money not for the pure art of it you know he he gives Carrie Mulligan's character shit because he's like well you just want to end up back in the suburbs you know in a nice house and that idea of like not of, of compromising your art to make a living is just it's so foreign to him mm-hmm. but I feel like it, it works almost better that it's Justin Timberlake because you know in the back of your head that he's a pop star so it sort of fits like it, it they they kind of play with that theme by getting someone like Justin Timberlake who very clearly did compromise or whatever to become a pop star. I never thought about it that way, but that is an extremely good point. That's yeah, that's super interesting. Huh. It's true though. And I think in a way social network does that a little bit too, in the sense that like the only person you're going to get to play a larger than life figure like Sean Parker is someone who, the audience already buys as a larger than life figure because Justin Timberlake is literally a pop star. Yeah. Like, so it just, it, it's almost like, you know, you have two really good directors in, in Fincher and the Coen brothers who they, they, 
I feel like they got Justin Timberlake not just because they thought he was a good actor or a good fit for the part, but because of who Justin Timberlake is and how that fit with what they were trying to get across in their movies. Yeah, that's a good point. It would be interesting to see him in something, an acting role that was like completely not Justin Timberlake to see if he could do it. Yeah. Has he been in any? I don't even know if he's been in anything else off the top of my head. The only movie I can remember that he was in that I haven't seen but I've read about was that movie Southland Tales. It was like the follow-up after uh, Donnie Darko. Oh, yeah. I did not see that movie. That was like supposedly super-duper-duper weird. Mm. Interesting. I don't think I... I, just, I, I re- no, go ahead. No, I, I just remember the... Uh, there's one scene in it that I've watched on YouTube where like he's... He's doing like a choreographed dance to the killers, uh, all these things that I've done in like a <laughs> arcade. It's just, it's apparently such a bizarre movie, but like I've watched that because it's so utterly ridiculous. And he's like lip syncing to the song and it's it's crazy. I don't know if I care enough to find out by watching that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, cool. So I, I did a couple of my favorite scenes. What are some of yours that maybe we didn't already talk about? So... That recording scene, I think, is great. Um, For me, and I know that you put this on the outline as something that you wanted to talk about a little bit, so maybe we can just talk about it now. The the scenes with John Goodman in the car on the way to Chicago. Um, For me, I think the part of the movie, like almost the, the most heartbreaking part of the movie, is when he leaves the cat in the car yeah with john goodman like the way he looks at the cat and the cat looks at him and then he just is like nah and he shuts the door and leaves him it's just like oh lewin why are you like this and you can and you can tell like it's not even just like this asshole doesn't care about the cat he's just gonna leave the cat like you could kind of see that it was a hard choice for him to make and he did it and that, yeah, that kind of breaks my heart a little bit. But that whole stretch of the movie, um, which you brought up in the outline, is so just to set it up. Um, at one point, um, Lewin essentially like hitches a ride with these two people that are driving to Chicago. Um, John Goodman, whose name I forget in the movie, um, and his what he calls his valet essentially his driver um who i think is supposed to be a beat poet um but i think it's easy to say that all of that doesn't matter um as far as like the plot or the meaning of the movie but i think it does um first of all because i think it's extremely coen brothers like john goodman's character First of all, John Goodman, generally, they like using him. And his character, which is, um, as we talked about earlier, kind of equal parts dramatic and hilarious. Um, So that, for that reason, but also, like, that stretch is kind of used as a place where we find out all of the things that have led to this place. Like, that's where we find out that his friend killed himself. that's kind of where we find out, like, we know that he's going to Chicago, um, but we don't really know what for until he gets there. 
Um, and it's kind of, I kind of thought, I don't know if you did, but there is a part in which we find out that um, Lewin knocked up a girl and paid for her to get an abortion and found out later on um, from the doctor that did it that she ended up not going through with it but never told him and that she was going home to Akron, Ohio to raise this kid. And like the first time I saw this movie, since they don't really clearly lay out why he's going to Chicago until he gets there, I kind of thought that maybe he was going to go and try to find this kid, this woman and this kid. Um, And they do kind of, when he's coming back from Chicago, kind of indicate that he is thinking about it, but he doesn't do it. Um, So I kind of think that that journey from Chicago, or from New York to Chicago back to New York, which happens, it seems, over the course of like two days, um, it's kind of, it was just like a place I think that they used to good effect to lay out a lot of stuff about Lewin's backstory that we didn't know, but that we needed to know in order to like fully paint the picture of this character. Yeah, that's fair. I think it, what you said about the Akron idea, that's interesting. I didn't think of that watching it. Um, like yeah. I sort of, I sort of looked at it as like, Oh, they just happened to be driving by Akron, but that's an interesting interpretation. And yeah, I could buy that, that, you know, maybe that was, you know, he wanted to go out to Chicago because he wanted to see if he could, you know, find a, you know, basically someone who's going to support his music and whatever. But I think that's totally reasonable to think that maybe that was another thought in his head mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe I will relocate and, you know, basically figure out like if I could be in my kid's life. And that's, that's really interesting. And that, that does add, does I add another layer to, to that part of the trip, because the reason why I put it in the outline is because even among some of the critics that really liked this movie, that was a part of the movie that a lot of them were like, well, I don't know if this quite works. You know, if, if this road trip with John Goodman and where John Goodman is just being a total dick the entire trip, like if that's really necessary. And I, I'm, I was kind of on the fence about it, but I just know that like that was a legitimate criticism thrown this movie's way. And I think it's yeah. worth talking about regardless. And I, I do get that because John Goodman's character and the driver don't really add anything to the story. Like, they're completely, like, outside of it. Um, John Goodman's character is a heroin addict, apparently. That little nugget, like, it's meaningless as far as the story goes. So I get that part of it. Um, But I also kind of feel like, like I said, it, it just felt to me like a spot where they wanted to do something Coen Brothers-y. And also needed a place to kind of lay out some backstory in a way that made sense. Um, But it it is a valid criticism, I think, because it is, like, completely not related to the actual action of the movie at all. Like, we don't see those characters again, and it doesn't matter. And if we had never seen them, it wouldn't have changed the story at all. So um, that's definitely a valid criticism, but I didn't – it didn't bother me so much that it took away – from the movie for me yeah i I didn't dislike it um you know one thing that and and this is something that i absolutely pay attention to in you know when i listen to albums and it's the same thing for movies like one one thing that one of my english teachers in high school told me that really for whatever reason has stuck with me in terms of like analyzing literature in particular but also like any form of you know this type of 
of art is that like you have to follow the rules as in me but once you get really really good at creating something then you're allowed to break the rules but you're not there yet so you can't break them and i almost feel like the cohen brothers like that part of the movie is a little bit like breaking the rules of what should be in a movie, but because they're so good, mm. they kind of have the flexibility to kind of toy with convention. You know, they can yeah. they can take risks that other other movie makers don't have the ability to even try. And, you know, they can do things that are a little bit off the wall because they have that ability. They've earned that rope. To, to be able to do it and you see that in books you see that I see that in albums all the time mm-hmm. but you see it in movies too and I think this is one of those things like one one of the reviews that I was reading yesterday when I was preparing for this made the argument and I mean this is I think a fair interpretation I don't know if I totally buy it but I think it's a fair interpretation of why that's in there is that John Goodman's character is supposed to like signify to Lewin like what Lewin could become if he just stays on this uncompromising path of, you know, I have this tunnel vision of what an artist should be and that's it. And you just become this like heroin addict, extremely unpleasant person who everyone hates. Yeah, I don't know if I 100% buy that, but I can understand why someone would interpret it that way. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was, and again, as I said, like, I don't know if I fully buy that. Yeah. But it is, it is an interesting, you know, interpretation of why that would be in there, why a section of the movie that, you know, maybe does seem a little little superfluous might actually be necessary. Hmm. Um, But kind of, kind of turning this, because this is something we touched on a little bit earlier, and I Mm -hmm. want to have this discussion, because I think it's an important discussion, is... You talked about, you know, Lewin leaving the cat in the car and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough, they make it so it's very clear it's a tough decision for him, but he does eventually leave the cat in the car and go off on his own way and you don't know what happens to the cat. And I think that that leads me into what is really a, a, a fascinating question in this movie, which is, is Lewin a likable character? You know, is he a good, is he a good, a good person? Is he a likable character or is he someone who you know, is actually bad and actually deserves the bad stuff that happens to him in this movie. It's just, it, it's really an interesting question. Yeah, and I, I really like this question because I feel like this is something that comes up a lot in a movie where the protagonist is not necessarily a good guy. Um, for me, it was like the biggest thing around the Joker when that came out. Um, the idea that this movie the protagonist of this movie is a demonstrably bad person and you're not supposed to root for them. And the thing is like, you don't have, you don't have to root for the main character in a movie. You don't have to want good things for them. You don't want, have to want the ending to be happy. Like that's not really how it works. And obviously in this movie, it's a lot more nuanced than the Joker. Like the Joker is a bad character. We like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He's bad. Um, But I think with, Lewin, I think that for me, I come away feeling like he is not a fundamentally bad person. He has bad qualities. He's selfish. Um, He's irresponsible. He's foolish in a lot of ways. Um, But I don't think he's a fundamentally bad person. And he is, I think, enough good is shown, like, you can kind of see some goodness in him enough that 
you're able to feel bad for all of the bad things that happened to him. And I think that's important because I don't think that he's supposed to be likable. I don't think that you're supposed to think he's a great person. Um, but they give you enough that you can feel bad because obviously, as we discussed, like that's the way this movie leaves you feeling is that you just feel super bad for this guy. And if he was completely unlikable and completely bad or evil, I don't think that you would feel bad for him. So it's it's a really interesting one because he's definitely there's a lot of nuance there, I think, with his character. Yeah, I I 100 percent agree with you. And um, yeah, I, I think to me, the, the thing that sticks out about him as a character is that he's just a very self-centered person, mm-hmm. um, which is. It definitely comes through. It comes through in his conversations with um, with Carrie Mulligan's character. It comes through. It comes through really throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, I, he spends the entire movie basically just like bumming it on people's couches. Yeah. Um, so that like, there's that. Not that like that's inherently bad, but it's just there's there's an element of like he just shows up in people's lives and fucks shit up mm-hmm. and doesn't really like worry about the fact that he's screwing stuff up. Um, which I feel like is an inherently self-centered characteristic. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is, like, you definitely do feel sympathy for him, and you definitely get the sense that in his his own way, he does care about the people around him. Yes. Maybe maybe he doesn't care about them as much as he cares about himself, but it's not like he's a sociopath. Like, he does care about Carrie Mulligan's character. He does care about the cat. Mm -hmm. He does care about, you know about even the people like the the um the the couple that um you know that that he's staying on their couch like he feels really bad that he's lost his cat and you know that he they let him stay at his at, at their house and then he basically just lost their animal and so it is a fascinating thing because he is he is extremely self-centered but you're right i think there's enough good there that you don't come away you don't come away hating him but what I think also is is interesting, at least to me, is that he doesn't. There's not a ton of character development. Like he makes he makes decisions about his life. So there's there's plot developments. He makes decisions that he's you know possibly going to change his career. He makes decisions that he's going to go back to New York. But like one of the final sequences of the movie, you know, he goes back to the to the the bar or the club or the concert hall, whatever you want to call that. They're like hangout place and basically feels sorry for himself and then heckles the hell out of some woman who's up on stage. And yeah. it's not it's not done totally out of cruelty because he's obviously in a horrible mental place and he had a terrible week and all this bad stuff happened to him. But like it is still an inherently self-centered thing to do mm-hmm. to put your own your own problems over someone else just trying to perform in front of people. So it's interesting to me that like, I do feel sympathy for him, even though I don't necessarily think he grows much Mm-mm. over the course of the movie. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, he definitely doesn't. Um, which I guess makes sense, given that the timeline is a week. Like, I don't think most of us change too much over the course yeah. of a week. But, um, yeah, he he's... I feel like if I knew him, he would be the kind of person that I liked but didn't really want to interact with very much like if I saw him out I'd be like hey Lewin how's it going but like you know you know if he was like your actual friend he would just drive you insane and like 
always be talking about himself and you would be like, all right, dude, like, I don't, all right. Like you played at the gaslight the other day. Cool, buddy. I don't want to hear about it anymore. But like you wouldn't hate him. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, but he doesn't, you're right. He doesn't grow at all. And even coming to the realization that he's going to have to do something besides music um, doesn't really turn him into something resembling a better person. Like he's still a self-centered, irresponsible shit just instead of trying to make a record, he's trying to get himself back into the merchant Marines so that he can make a living. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's, he's definitely, he's complicated because he's good and bad, but like who among us? Yeah, you know, and also yeah. I feel like people performers like that. I don't know a lot of people who perform for a living, um, but I f- I kind of feel like that self centeredness is almost like an inherent personality trait that you need to have in order to be that kind of person. Um, so I I don't know, and I don't know if that's true or not, but like in my mind I feel like. If you're going to try to be a performer and you're going to try to make a living off of this, like, you have to think that you are so good. Like, you have to really believe that about yourself because otherwise you're not going to try to make it to this, like, 0.5% market where people do this kind of stuff for a living. So you're probably going to be, you know, a little bit of a shit, even if you don't mean to be. It's just kind of a part of the character that you need to have in order to, like, live that life. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there's different types of, of you know, songwriters or movie makers or whatever, you know, artists, whatever uh, creative field you want to say. I'm sure there's some people who don't have that feeling and, you know, who don't have that personality. But I bet, I, I suspect that it is a a profession that yeah. those kind of people gravitate towards maybe mm. because so much of it is, you know, you're putting yourself out on display. And the idea, you know, for you to have the confidence to put yourself out on display, you have to have a little bit of, you know, that like on the shit kind yeah. of thing because otherwise you would never even do it. Like you would never get up on stage in the first place. You have to have that inherent belief in your own, you know, not even competence, but in your own greatness to believe that, it's worth it for other people to hear what you have to say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, sometimes I wonder like what, if they made a movie about Lewin Davis and his friend and how their life was while they were a duo, I wonder how much different he would be yeah. as a person. Because I feel like maybe not that different because it's clear from the start of the movie that, the shitty behavior is kind of an ongoing thing for him. Like the crashing on the couches and the, you know, coming in and out of people's lives and sleeping with someone's wife. And like, you kind of get the, the idea that this isn't like a new kind of behavior for him. But also I wonder if there was a time in his life when he wasn't a shit. And I kind of feel like, like we said before that they show you enough goodness that I think it's reasonable to believe that at one point he wasn't, this messy a person. I think that's important. And I think that was, that was something I did want to touch on. I didn't think we were going to, cause we're probably going to be wrapping up the movie section, but I, I think it's an important point is that, and that's, it's very, 
I, I think it's it's a good thing that the Cohen brothers leave that open ended, but it's a completely fair point to say that, you know, this is someone who lost, you know, at the very least a dear friend. And you have no idea what impact that had on on him as a person, on his personality, on his mental state. And it's totally reasonable to wonder, you know, is this the real Lewin Davis? Or yeah. is this just you know, an extremely damaged, worst-case scenario version of Lewin Davis. Yeah. And it, it's a really interesting point because, yeah, you know, that sort of thing, someone you're that close to kills themselves, yeah, it, it leaves it leaves trauma. And that's not something that should be ignored in this movie, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And it is, this is, like we said at the start, this is a movie that makes you think. It makes you think about a whole bunch of stuff. And that's part of why it's so good. Yeah. So, uh, so to close it out, um, you'll probably have a better answer for this than I will, because I'm assuming you've watched far more Coen Brothers movies than I have. But like, where would you rank this in the Coen Brothers, I guess, filmography, whatever you want to call it? Yeah, I pulled up a filmography list because in my head I couldn't remember all of them. There are so many. Um, I would put this top three for sure. Um, okay. With, for me, um, The Big Lebowski and probably no country um but i i feel like this is this is one a lot of their movies are they do skew i think more goofy than dramatic a lot of them do um but this one i think i i would say this is the coen brothers movie that made me feel the most so and i i like that kind of thing so this is definitely a top three for me Okay, then that makes sense. I, I've only seen, um, I guess now I've seen five. I saw, I've seen Big Lebowski, A Brother Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, True Grit, and now this one. And I think I probably like this the second most. Okay. Like, I, Big Lebowski is number one because, like, to me, that's one of the most, like, easily rewatchable movies ever. Yes, it's just over and over so again. Like, <laughs> like, you can watch that a hundred times and it's still funny and it's still ridiculous. Um, so that's, like, a top-tier movie for me. But uh, I think this is probably number two. Like, I think I like this more than, than No Country for Old Men, which I enjoyed. But this yeah. one this one hits me harder, I think, than No Country for Old Men. Okay, cool. I kind of want to make you watch uh, The Hudsucker Proxy now, which is one of their okay. older ones, but it's super good. But we'll cross okay. that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> in, in a few weeks, if Hawkins yeah. throws it back, we can, we can discuss. Okay, well that was that was long, but I think it was it was a cool yeah, conversation. It, it was, was good. It's, it's a really good movie, and I think it was worth talking about. Um, but now we will take a quick break. Um, so stay stay buckled in for the long haul, and then we're gonna come back with our our album for the week uh, by a band called The Weaker Thens called Reunion Tour. Hey everybody, hope you will check out that product or service <laughs> or whatever that you just listened to. <laughs> Had to bring that into uh, to, to other stuff. It's uh, great. So anyway, we we just got done uh, diving into um, Inside Lou and Davis. Um, that was not meant to be a pun, but sure, let's roll. With it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so now we're gonna go to the uh, the album, and this was my choice this week, and I chose um, one of. Uh, probably one of my favorite bands i think they're like top 10 for me i would say um band i've been into for for years and years and years um since i got really since i got into music in like the early 2000s uh the band called the weaker thens um they're like a canadian uh punk folkish band um primarily it's primarily a vehicle for this guy john k samson 
And this was their last album called Reunion Tour. It was released in 2007. And originally it wasn't supposed to be their last album. Like they didn't release this knowing it was going to be their last one. And I don't think they like hate each other or anything. It's just, they think they like went back in the studio a couple more times, couldn't really pull anything together and then just slowly went their separate ways. Um, but this probably will be the last album they ever do uh, as the Weaker Thans, I would assume, um, their fourth album. Um, so just kind of to give some uh, some background, as I said, it's pretty much a vehicle for John K. Sampson, the primary songwriter. He's the, the lead vocalist, lead guitarist, everything. Um, and he used to be in a like a heavy, very political punk rock band called Propagandi. And they're still around, actually. They were also based in, in Winnipeg, which is where the Weaker Thens are from. Um, and he was in that band for quite a while. He was, uh, he was in that band for, I believe, seven years. Um, and then he leaves in 1997, and he forms the Weaker Thens. And they release an album called Fallow in 1997, which I don't love. It's okay. It has a couple good songs, but it's nothing that really I would put on, like, my favorite songs of theirs. Um, and it's a lot different from Propagandi. Like, their early stuff, I think, did have more of the, like, punk rock lyrics. Like, the, he was definitely, when he formed The Weaker Thans, he wanted it to be more personal. And he wanted it to be more, you know, focused on emotions and things like that, rather than yelling about the the perils of capitalism. But in the first couple albums, that definitely still is there. Like, he's, he can't stop himself from writing a couple songs in an album about that kind of stuff. Like, there's a song off their second album called Pamphleteer, and it's basically just about this guy who's, like, handing out Marx's pamphleteers while ruminating on his life. Huh. And, uh, and like, that, like that's the kind of stuff that, like— You're selling me, Charles. Like the, br- <laughs> the bridge, the bridge between, um, <laughs> between uh, the, the punk rock side of him and this more, like, you know, folky, uh, intimate, emotional side that the weaker then sort of took on. Um, but again, like folk rocky, a lot of acoustic songs and even like the faster songs are more in like the pop punk style rather than like the heavy punk that, that propaganda used to do. Um, but the big thing with them is they're, they're a lyrics band. And I think that's why I love them so much is that, you know, the music is fine. It's not bad. Um, but it's, it's very clearly a vehicle for, for John K. Sampson's lyrics. And like, he's, he is my favorite lyricist, I think, ever. I don't know if I would call him the best, but he's my favorite in terms of, like, the impact that his lyrics have on me. Um, and the first album of his that really hit me hard is Left and Leaving, which was uh, released in 2000. And that that album was... I probably listened to that maybe, like, four or five years after it came out, and that just hit me extremely hard. Um, so I have a real personal connection to uh, to that one, uh, particularly the, the more, like, acoustic songs of that album. Um, that was, and it's also probably like their most universally beloved. Um, then three years later, they come out with an album called Reconstruction Site, which is almost as beloved. Um, and some people would argue it's their best. It's definitely like a little bit more indie rock in the sense that like, it's kind of a loose concept album. There's three sonnets in the album. So he's very much like flexing like his English major abilities. And <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's a little bit, there's still some amazing songs in that album. Like it's very, very good, but it's not, it just doesn't hit me quite as hard as left and leaving, which I think is a little bit, it's, it's a little bit more personal and heavy hitting to me. Um, so then four years later, they come back and they release reunion tour, which ends up being their last one. And, it's not, I feel like it's not as well regarded as Left and Leaving and Reconstruction Site, but I think it's probably my second favorite as a whole um, for reasons that I'll, I'll talk about a little later. 
Um, but he's still like the band then, you know, they, they toured for this album. I remember the one time I saw them lie was them touring for this album. Um, I think I saw them, I believe at the TLA. Um, and then, you know, they did some shows and then they just kind of went their separate ways. And John still releases solo albums on occasion. He actually released one like three or four years ago called winter wheat, which was with a couple of the members of the weaker then. So like they described it as kind of like the closest thing you're going to get to another weaker than's album, which kind of made it clear that like there probably is going to be another weaker than's album. Um, so he's still around. Um, but okay. yeah, that's uh, it's kind of the backstory of these guys. They haven't been a, a real band for over 10 years now. Shit. God, I'm getting old. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- this album, I, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, to bring it because, you know, there is the Canada aspect and also there definitely to me were some similarities, particularly in this album between, um, some of the stuff that you liked off of the Founds of Wayne album. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was kind of a, a little bit of a bridge between like Tragically Hip and Fountains of Wayne, two albums that we had, we had done earlier. Yeah, I can see that. And um, I was kind of glad that you did because this is a band that I'd never listened to, um, but one that people kept telling me about. Like, I think like four or five times when I was living with Micah, he would say like, hey, have you heard of the Uyghur Lens? And then like, I'd be like, no, I haven't. <laughs> Like I or like, yeah, I've heard of them, but I never really listened to them. Like, I I think he likes them a lot, too. Um, And it's really interesting to me um, reading the outline, like given how many people have mentioned them to me, um, I guess because I'm the Canada person, I kind of assumed that they had kind of like a tragically hip level discography, like they've been around forever and have a million songs. But it seems like they were like you know, relatively short-lived as long as bands go, but for some reason um, obviously made quite an impact on the people that listen to their music. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, definitely had a huge impact on me, but you're right. They they didn't release a ton of albums, only four, um, and it's not like they were super long albums either, so you're only talking probably about like, you know, maybe 50-ish songs that they, that they recorded mm-hmm. um, in total, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's probably the lyrics, and also yeah. I would assume for for Canadians, like Winnipeg in particular, is just kind of like this, you know, not exactly a you know a profile city <laughs> in Canada, and to have like this band coming from from Winnipeg, I think was like a really big deal to a lot yeah. of people in like the central part of Canada. Like funny story about that when I was um, when I went to the draft um, in Vancouver. Uh, this would be last year, so last June. Um, we had that event for uh, for Jason Botchford, the charity event for, for Jason Botchford's family after he passed away. And all the athletic writers were sitting up in, like, the balcony section mm-hmm. and, and listening. And then it ended, and we were a couple, like, probably, like, about it's between, like, eight and ten of us, like, the younger crew. Um, we're just sitting at a table, you know, drinking beer and just shooting the shit. And somehow the the conversation gets turned to music, and I forget why, but like I brought up like, oh yeah, like you know you know one of my favorite bands, The Weaker Thans, and uh, Marat, who is the writer for the Jets, mm-hmm. like he like turns his head, like jerks his head, and then just like his eyes get all big, and then he gets up and he flips his chair over, and he's like, I cannot believe you are talking about The Weaker Thans. <laughs> This guy comes to this table and is talking about the weaker than and it, I was like laughing so hard when he did that. But I think a lot of that boils down to this idea that, you know, like 
he's obviously a Winnipeg writer. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if he's originally from Winnipeg, but like definitely from like that that area. And you know, to have a band that really got like a diehard following to come from an area where those sort of things don't usually come from. Yeah. Um, I think that probably, you know, endeared them to a lot of people in Canada. Yeah, that makes sense. And as we talked about with the Tragically Hip, Canadians have a tendency um, to really love their own things in a way that we don't do here. I guess maybe because we have so many things that when they have a thing that's like very good and beloved, they they really hang on to it. I find it endearing. I think as I, we've talked about this, I yeah. think it's mo- it's mostly endearing. At until times, you get to Leafs fans, yeah. Until you get to Leafs so fans, it's, en- it's endearing, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I do. I, I think it is it is endearing, and it's it's funny for me. Like I used to, and I lost this shirt years ago, and I it actually makes me quite sad. I lost it, um, but I had a weaker than shirt, and it was a weaker than shirt. It was off of this album, and it had like two uh two things for curling and then like the curling thing <laughs> and then it had win had winnipeg under it and people would ask me like why the hell are you wearing a shirt that says winnipeg on it? <laughs> oh it's because it's this band and i really like them and i don't know they they definitely i mean obviously they had a big following in canada but they definitely had a following i think in the punk scene mm-hmm. which is how i got into them originally because they were like they were like the like the indie lyrics band that it was okay for punk rockers to like because he was a former punk rocker and he's part of our scene and like this is like the sensitive band for (laughs) punk rockers and i i don't know like that was sort of what got me into them originally and then i really really fell in love with the lyrics and they just became you know one of my one of my favorite bands but you know kind of going through to this album um it was it was kind of I guess an interesting choice because I don't think it's their best. Mm-hmm. I think Left and Leaving is their best, and I think Reconstruction Site is Reconstruction Site maybe has some of their most I guess recognizable songs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one song on on Reconstruction Site that's called One Great City, and it's basically just this like anti love letter to Winnipeg, <laughs> where the uh, the the core it's an acoustic song basically and it's just about him singing about like all the terrible things about winnipeg and then the chorus is i hate winnipeg but it's done in a way where like it's very clear that like he doesn't hate winnipeg he just like you know he hates it but he hates it in the way you like hate your your younger brother yeah. where it's yeah. like i can talk shit about my younger brother but you can't. yeah right uh, <laughs> um and that's a great song that's like one of their classics there are a couple others on that album that are that are generally accepted to be some of their best but I really like this album and I like it in part because it's just, it's less, it's trying to be less than their other albums. Mm -hmm. The left and leaving is very clearly like an epic, you know, it's this epic, emotionally devastating record. And then reconstruction site is this like semi concept album, you know, where he's making sonnets and, you know, it's a little bit longer than their usual albums. Whereas this one, it's really kind of unassuming at first listen. It's just kind of just trying to be about the songs even though when you really dive into it, I think there's a lot there. And that's one of the reasons why I, I like this as like a first album, because it's it's a little bit more diverse musically, but it's just not as it's it's not as much as some of their other albums that maybe might be better, but maybe, you know, take a little bit more getting used to, if that makes sense. It does. And Going in cold and having this being my first listen and knowing nothing about the band apart from the fact that they're Canadian, um, it's actually super interesting to learn that this band has a punk background. Um, Because, like, for me, 
as a first listen, if like the aliens from the recently discovered parallel universe were to come to Earth and say, Kelly, what does indie rock sound like? I would say, have a listen to this album by The Weaker Thens. <laughs> this is indie rock. Like, it's extremely for me, like, if I think of indie rock, that's the sound that I think of. So knowing that they have a punk background is super interesting to me. Yeah, there's definitely, um, definitely the early stages were more pop punky. Like, mm-hmm. there's one there's one song called Aside that's on Left and Leaving that actually was, like, the first time I'd ever heard The Weaker Thens in, like, something semi-popular. Well, really popular. It's it's the song they play over the credits of the movie Wedding Crashers. Okay. And I remember free, I remember freaking out when I heard that in the theaters. I'm like, holy shit, it's The Weaker Thens. How do they get in this soundtrack? <laughs> um, but, that, but there are a lot of their songs on those first couple albums are very, like, pop punky. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, th- three chords, you know, Maybe not like Green Day-ish, but definitely like pop punk, just with much better lyrics than most pop punk songs. Whereas this album is a little bit more subdued. You know, they're trying some new things musically, and I can totally buy the like, this sounds like an indie rock album. I, I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say it's a bad thing. Um, It's just, it makes me want to listen to this earlier stuff that you're talking about. Because for me, um, this kind of indie rock sound not my favorite like this whole like death cab like that kind of sound um it's not like I hate it it's just like not something that I gravitate towards as a music fan like I generally like something a little bit harder so I'm I'm actually gonna download their earlier album because I want to hear what that sounds like because I feel like um I feel like the what like the impression that I was left with before I learned anything from you about them was that they were like a death cab style band. Like that's kind of what I assumed it was. Um, and also because like the people who have told me about them like generally listen to that kind of music. So I just kind of thought like sure. this was this was the kind of band they are. Um, so I'd really like to to know like what the roots are a little bit to because it's it's soup like you don't generally I think see a pop punk band evolve into that kind of sound like that's kind of an interesting journey yeah that's fair um and yeah like i think that's 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 reasonable um i think their early stuff the 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 thing with their early stuff is that it's very much like on one end of the spectrum or the other where Mm. it was either like we're gonna write a catchy pop punk song that just has really good lyrics or we're gonna write an acoustic song and that was sort of what, when I say like punk, that's sort of what I mean, where it was like even pop punk albums have acoustic songs. And it was just sort of, they were like, they were kind of at one extreme or the other. And this album is definitely them more kind of trying to maybe find that middle ground. Yeah. That definitely falls in more of the indie rock realm. Um, I, the Death Cab, the Death Cab comparison is interesting because the only, the only song of this album that I remember, I remember when I heard it thinking it sounded like Death Cab was Sun in an Empty Room. And that, mm. that song definitely has like a Death Cab vibe. It does. Um, that, so- that sounds like something that, that Ben Gibber would write. Um, the other stuff, you know, maybe because I knew where the influences were coming from, it didn't sound as much like them, mm-hmm. but I can buy it. Because, I mean, the vocals, the, there are similarities in terms of the vocals, yeah. without a doubt. They, they kind of have that similar, like, you know, not, not necessarily whiny, but definitely higher pitched. Mm-hmm um you know singing style and it is lyrically focused although i mean i like death cab but i think john k samson is a much better lyricist than than ben gibber yeah and i don't think ben gibber's a bad lyricist but i think i think samson's significantly better um but yeah i mean it's interesting i think this might be the first album that we're doing that like you don't really love it doesn't sound like you hate it but it doesn't sound like you're super duper into it yeah i think 
that's a fair assessment of my feeling on it. I listened to it three times through, um, and I did enjoy a few songs, but I it didn't like the uh, the other one, the Stacy's mom boys. <laughs> they um, <laughs> like I would that one shocked me because I liked it so much and I didn't really expect to. Um, so this one was more of like the second and third listening of some of these songs. They grew on me more. Um, but I would say, yeah, like for me, this is kind of like a, if I had to do a one to 10, this one would be like a 6.5. Didn't hate it, but didn't love it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and that, that I, I knew at some point we were going to be getting into albums and, you know, movies probably at some point that like the other person's not going to totally love. And I think that's cool. Which I think is good. Um, yeah. I think it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, in this album... This album came out, I guess, when I was, might have been the summer between high school and college for me. Okay. And, and yeah, this album hit me hard. I think, like, my, my interpretation of this album has always been, like, the, 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 the name of the album is Reunion Tour, and the title track is basically about, like, a band trying to go back on tour after being broken up for a long time and trying to recapture their old days. And I think that's – it works well as, like, a metaphor for the album as a whole, which really – I've always interpreted it to mostly be about, like, the weird feeling of, like, wanting to return to a time and place that you know you can't go back to. But you mm-hmm. want to, but you know you can't go back to. And there's just, like, a lot of the key songs on the album are very much about that. Like, Civil Twilight, which is the opener, it's pretty, it's it's basically a, a short story almost about a bus driver in Winnipeg who every day has to, on the route that the bus driver's taking, they don't say if it's a, you know, if it's a guy or a girl, but um, has to go by an ex's house. Mm. And it's just reminiscing on, you know, how it ended and, you know, the idea of like you know you want there's that wistful feeling of what might have been even though you don't necessarily want to get back together with them it's just that it's still there and those feelings don't just go away and to have to go by that house every single day is tough um then there's another song um uh virgite the cat explains her departure which is actually the the second song of a trilogy about this cat and basically the first song is way more pop punky. It's from uh, Reconstruction Site, and it's um, that's called "Plea from a Cat Named Virgite," and that's that's probably the best of the three. And basically, that song is about the cat, like it, it's told from the perspective of the cat telling the owner basically to like not be depressed anymore. Mm because I can't take it and like you're way better than you're giving yourself credit for and I want to support you but I can't because I'm a cat and I'm doing <laughs> the best I can with who I am and then this song is Virtue the Cat Explains Her Departure which is essentially like the cat leaves mm-hmm. because the cat can't deal with the fact that like the the owner couldn't get over his bullshit and um and then the cat can't find her way back home and that song is is utterly devastating and then in the um in the the most recent solo album he did, he, there's an album, there's a song called Virtue at Rest, and that's like the final song of the trilogy. And that's basically about like, you know, I, I it, it's a little bit more sparse, so it's more open to interpretation, but I've always interpreted that song to be like, the cat never did come back home, mm. but the, cat's, the cat still lives on in the memory of the guy who actually did end up cleaning up his act. It's just like... I never came back home, but if I did, I would support who you are now. 
And it's a cool little like little trilogy that I've always loved. But like this song works for this album because again, it's like the cat leaves and then the cat can't remember her way back home and can't remember her name. Yeah. Can't remember her name that the owner used to call them. And it's just devastating. Um, and then Night Windows, which I think is like the climax of the album, is basically just like going back to a house and staring at a house of a where a friend um, of, of this person used to live who passed away and just kind of coming to terms with that loss. And I, I love I love the way like I, I love Samson's writing. I think he's an incredible writer, mm-hmm. but I, I love in this album the way he writes about nostalgia because he nails that that kind of balance between nostalgia being at the same time a wonderful thing and also a terrible thing yeah because like you feel good but you also feel really bad because it's gone yeah and um and i think that's like it's a very tough thing to hit on especially in music and i think he does it really well and that's one of the reasons why i really do love this album as much as i do i did pay more attention to the lyrics listening to this album than i normally do um and they are quite good like quite good and I didn't I think it's harder for me to pick up on themes in an album because I don't pay as much attention to the lyrics um so I didn't specifically get the nostalgia thing until you said it out loud and now I'm like yeah yeah I get it and it is an extremely complex thing to describe because it is equal parts good and bad and like happy and really sad and it's like a weird, but also a thing that all of us know, right? Which is like the best kind of music, I think, is the kind that anybody can identify with in some kind of way. I, I think so. I mean, there's definitely some albums and some songs that, you know, they might only hit certain people a certain way, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they're very specific or it's, you know, more narrative-based and whatnot. But I do agree that I think the best songs are ones that they might be about one thing, mm-hmm. but you can see yourself in different aspects of the song. Like, I'm not a bus driver in Winnipeg, but <laughs> I can see myself in that, like, wistful feeling of, like, what might have yeah. been, you know? Do you think that the time that you first listened to this album, because we talked a lot about this with the hip, do you think that the time that you first listened to this album in any way, like, shaped the way that you feel about it? I'm, I'm sure it did. I, I can't I can't imagine it did. Yeah. I mean, because it, it the all these albums are you know, time and place albums without a doubt, especially when you're in those like formative years mm-hmm. of, you know, your musical taste. So yeah, I absolutely believe that. Um, I would say that if I would like, by the time this album came out, I definitely was more in the realm of like looking at albums analytically. Um, not that I didn't, I, not that I still don't, you know, have real emotional attachments to my favorite albums and I have a real emotional attachment to this, to this album. But if there's an album of theirs that I would say like it was shaped by my emotional connection to it first and foremost, it's probably left and leaving just because mm. that was the first one of theirs I loved. Okay. And I loved it for like very, very specific reasons that I attached to all of the songs. Whereas like by the time this album came out, I was, you know, I was listening to albums for like what the themes are and, you know, how is it structured and things like that. Mm. And, but you know, when I listened to left and leaving, I was just listening to it to be like, how does this album you know, how does this song hit me? Yeah. And I mean, in a way, that's probably a more more pure way to listen to an album, but it also makes it really hard for me to like 
objectively evaluate left and leaving because it just has so much of an impact yeah. on me emotionally that like i can't really critique it like i can critique this album i don't know if i could critique left and leaving because okay. it just means too much yeah that's interesting because i i kind of just assumed that the way that you listen to music is the way that you've always listened to music um so it's interesting to know that like small charlie was just a ball of feelings getting sucked into songs (laughs) i mean i i definitely still do no i know it's different it's it's a it's a little bit different it's different than when you know you're you're learning you're not so much i mean you're definitely when you're that age you're like you're learning about who you Mm -hmm. are but you're also learning how to love music i think and and there's an element of just you know you're exploring rather than you know you're maybe now i a little i a little bit too much try to like fit things into boxes i will say that like once i fit an album into a box then i really really get into the emotions of Mm -hmm. it but before i had those boxes to fit things in it just boiled down to whether a song hit me yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense when we're young we don't have Um, any real structure in our minds it's just a (laughs) bunch of wild emotions exactly exactly um so we talked a little bit about uh about the tragically hip about fountains of wayne um and i do think like it's not as blatant as it was with the tragically hip where pretty much every song had some reference to canada just like having pride in in just being a canadian and everything that comes along with that um but there's definitely like he definitely john k sanson definitely does uh drop these sort of things in like there's he kind of goes on this and they they did this in a couple of their albums where they do like a spoken word song Mm -hmm. um and this one has elegy for gump worsley which who gump worsley was a former goalie um and that's basically just like an ode to him and he was he was a goalie in like the 50s and 60s who was like very much not a modern day goalie like he was a little overweight and like very like openly talked about how much he drank and like was just a like very much like a throwback type nhl player and um and that's like an extremely canada song yeah uh we already talked about civil twilight um tournament of hearts is about curling um which and like there's like a hundred curling references in the song um which is obviously an unbelievably canadian sport it's basically canadian bowling um, and then I, I already talked about one great, one great city being like a classic Winnipeg ode. Um, but like we talked about this a little with tragically hit, but like, why do Canadian songwriters seem to like doing this Canada thing so much? I don't know. I, I do think it has something to do with the whole, um, extremely prideful feelings that they have about Canada and Canadian things generally. Um, but I was thinking about this when I was reading the outline, and this isn't a thought that I had before, but I wonder if we would notice how much Canadian stuff there was if we were Canadian listening to this band, or would it just be songs? Because um, like, I was thinking about, like, I don't really think about like Bruce Springsteen songs as like specifically american but like if you listen to them they are they're pretty dang american but like the references don't jump out because they're just so like ubiquitous to us and i wonder if it's just kind of like the fact that it's different to us makes it so obvious but i do and we talked about this on the hip show like i do generally think um that canadians generally have a lot of 
pride in being Canadian and the things that make them Canadian. And like the curling song, like curling in the in the prairies, like where Win- where Winnipeg is, is like huge culturally. It's like every small town has a curling rink, like not even a hockey rink always, but always a curling rink. And like maybe that's where the one bar in the town is, is at the curling rink. And so that's where everyone goes to hang out. And it's like it makes sense that someone from Winnipeg, if they're like going to frame a song. And I, I really like that song because it's like he's using the curling metaphors to like describe the ways that he is like failing at life, it seems like, yeah. which is yeah. cool. And it's like, you know, if you're from Winnipeg, it might make sense that your frame of reference, like rather than using baseball metaphors, you're going to use curling metaphors because it's like the thing that everybody does. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's like an interesting thing to think about. But um. I don't know. I, I kind of am starting to think that maybe it's just because it's outside to us that we notice it more, which is kind of neat. That's a, yeah, that's a fair point. Um, and you're probably right objectively on that. Because, um, yeah, like, I, I guess on some level we realize that, like, Bruce Springsteen is very Americana and stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, it's not – you don't think of Bruce Springsteen as, like, America's tragically hit. Right, you know right. I mean? But, like, in a way, I mean, it kind of works. Um, you know, in more ways than one, because definitely, you know, Tragically Hip, at least based on the album we listened to, the only one I've listened to in full, um, they were more than willing to, like, shed light on some of the not-so-great mm-hmm. things about Canada, too. It wasn't just all, like, this gigantic pep rally. And right. Bruce Springsteen obviously was very similar in that regard, that, you know, he was he was really probably more negative yeah. about America yeah. than, than positive. <laughs> but uh, I, I think maybe one of the things, too, that, like makes it a little bit less obvious to us aside from the fact that we are American we grew up here um is just the fact that like American culture mm. is so ubiquitous to just the world at large so it doesn't feel as weird when you hear them singing about like New York City or something because yeah. it's, you know yes it's it's a US city but it's also kind of a world city in a sense. Whereas if you're singing about Winnipeg, right. the only people that are going to care about Winnipeg are Canadians. Right. <laughs> so there's probably there's probably that aspect of it too. But I do think it's a fair point. I think it's a very fair point that you know it probably just you know there there are bands of mine that probably count as like America focused bands that I don't think of as America focused mm-hmm. bands because it's just well yeah obviously they're singing about America because we're Americans and that's where they're from yeah. whereas in Canada it's weird because <laughs> Canada just isn't as you know Canadian culture is a little bit more insular and just isn't as you know widespread throughout the world as American culture is yeah but also like for realsies they do like really care about things being Canadian and celebrating them so it mean it makes <laughs> sense that if you're a Canadian band, you're going to write about the Canadian things. Exactly. Exactly. Um, cool. So I guess uh, this is when we talk about favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite song, as I said, my favorite song, I think, is is the Virgite, the cat song. Because, as I said, it's just it's part of the trilogy. And it's definitely, like, I feel like the centerpiece of the album. It's just got that. And I'm not, I'm, like, far from a cat person. <laughs> I'm not really a pet person. But those songs always hit me really hard mm-hmm. just because I feel like not only are they – is it just a very, very unique perspective that I never heard anyone else really write about, at least in a rock song. Um, I think it also kind of – you can you can sort of put yourself in the shoes of the cat almost as like a friend. Yeah. Like, you know, a, a friend who's not, you know, who is – 
in a bad place and you're trying to help them and you can't. And it's just that, that feeling of like banging your head against the wall. You know, what can I do to get through to this person who I really love, but also like you can't make someone's feelings change just because you want their feelings to change. And I think like that trilogy means a lot to me. So that's probably my favorite song on the album, but civil twilight. I love night windows. I love um, relative surplus value, which is probably like the most fountains of Wayne ish song. Mm-hmm. On here. Um, even down to like the businessy, like yeah. basically about a guy who loses, loses his money and loses his job in like the dot-com bubble and then goes home and is just like, what am I going to do with my life now? Um, that's like a very, very fascinating yeah. song. Um, but, uh, but that, that one I really like a lot, but yeah, I mean, I, I like most of this album, but I'm, I'm curious to hear yours. So I liked Relative Surplus Value. Um, also, it wasn't my favorite. If I had to pick two, well, it was a toss-up for me. I couldn't pick one. Um, Civil Twilight, I liked a lot. And I also really liked Tournament of Hearts. And not just because it was about Canadian things, but also, <laughs> like, I think it, like, it's kind of just, like, a fun, like, you know, jammy kind of song. And also... Um, I kind of like totally get it. Like, why can't I? Why can't I put the fucking rock on the target? Like, why can't I do that? Like, you know what I mean? Like that part yeah, of like yeah. <laughs> your life. Like, why can't I just do the thing that I'm trying to do? Why isn't it working for me? And it's like that. I don't know. That really resonated with me. So I like that one quite a lot. Yeah, I, I like that song a lot too. And I think it's it's cool in in a way like this album i think that's one of the reasons maybe why i like left and leaving so much because it's not and and i'm not saying this is bad Mm -hmm. because i totally number one i still love these songs and number two because i get why someone like john k sansom who is such a really really talented lyricist would just start like kind of trying shit out and being like what if I wrote a song from the perspective of a cat? What if I wrote a gigantic metaphor about curling? Like, and it's just very much like, I got to come up with new challenges for myself because like, I just want to see what I can do. Whereas like left and leaving is very much not cloaked in anything. It's just like straight up like emotion. I mean, there's some like storytelling aspects of it without a doubt, Mm -hmm. but it's less like, it's less like him, you know, trying to set out to see, like, I wonder if I can do this. And it's more just like him spilling his guts onto the page, which I think is one of the reasons why I like Left and Leaving more than any of the others. But, like, Tournament of Hearts is very much like a, you know, there really hasn't been a curling song. I wonder if I could write a, I wonder if I could write a good curling song. And he does, he because he's a great lyricist. But, like, it just, that was always kind of what I, what I thought of when I listened to that, was just like, I wonder why no one has done that. I'm going to try it. <laughs> I mean, I can see that because he's definitely, you know, forcing curling words into life metaphors, which is, you know, probably not an easy thing to do, but he did it quite well. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, so then uh, least favorite songs. So you had a couple in here. I have a couple that I definitely would put on a lower tier. So we'll start with you. So I so I understood like poetically and artistically um why elegy for gump worsley is like something that people like like i get that but for me like that kind of spoken word track in the middle of an album is just kind of like a like you know what i mean like it just kind of like yeah that's that's it, totally it kind of so that one for that reason um didn't love it and i didn't love uh him of the medical oddity i just didn't I don't know if it was just like 
the tempo of it was like too slow or or what it was but that was always the one that like if I was going to skip one I would skip that one I think that's fair um and that was never that's actually an interesting track for me going back to because I, I didn't listen to this album in a few years um usually when I want to listen to the weaker ones I listen to Let's and Leaving um but I was listening to it a few weeks ago and that's when it kind of hit me that like this could be a good Kelly album hmm. um a good album for other stuff um but him and the medical oddity is interesting because I don't think I love that song when I was real, like when I really listened to this album on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think I skipped it, but it definitely wasn't one of my favorites. And I don't think I still don't think it's one of my favorites. I would probably put it lower tier. That said, I do think that like I have a deeper appreciation for it now um, because. I, I always knew what the song was about. And basically what the song is about is um, it's essentially about, um, I think it's about someone I want to, I want to make sure I get this right. So let me type this in because I don't want to, I don't want to screw up the uh, like the exact nature of what it's about. Um, but basically what it's about is um, this person's born and they're born. Um, no, it's, it was a, a botch it was a botch circumcision destroys the this person's penis and basically what ends up happening is the doctor convinces the parents to raise the kid as a girl to study her as like this like gender experiment and at the time it was like when when i listened to this in 2007 it was just like okay that's an interesting story whatever but i feel like now because i feel like and this is a good thing for society as a whole i think we've we've just gained a better understanding of like gender dynamics mm-hmm. and things like that. And looking back on it now and listening to this song now, like it really does hit home, like just how much of a disservice just turning this person's life into an experiment on gender was doing this person. And it really makes it hit harder because I just, I feel like I understand the gravity of what was done in this situation. Okay. And it makes it a much more devastating song to me now than it was to me 13 years ago, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I respect that assessment of it. And maybe if I had listened to it harder, it would have felt different. Um, But I guess just like the whole package together, I was just like, meh. Yeah, and I think just musically, mm-hmm. it is kind of dull. Like, there's not a lot going on. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a, you know, totally understandable why that would be a reason why. And I think it's a reason why even now, like, I maybe have a better understanding of what, you know, John was going for. Um, but I still don't, like, it's still not a particularly exciting song. Yeah. It's just now I, I think about it more when I listen. It's just, I mean, back back then, back in 2007, it was just like, oh, well, that's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. And now it's very much like, you know, you listen to this song and, you know, I feel just like the the, the sadness and the absolute, like, injustice that was done to this person by not letting their, not letting their feelings determine the course of their yeah. life. Just doing it based on this experiment that, that this doctor and parents decided, like, okay, you're a girl. And... When I was, you know, when it was 2007 and I was, you know, a freshman in college, I guess I just didn't understand the gravity of that decision to the degree that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's deep, Charlie. It's deep. <laughs> um, I guess so. Least favorite songs for me. Um, 
in all honesty, and this is like, I, I actually, I like LG for Comp Worsley. I understand why someone who's not into that sort of thing wouldn't like it. I like it partially because of the hockey thing and because I, lo- I, I love the ending um, where uh, you get like the double meaning of him saying, because this was actually one of his lines, was that... Um, was that he they they he his fist was before masks were worn mm-hmm. and he made the joke that my face is my mask and like because his face was all like destroyed by getting hit in the face with pucks and like it works on one level as like a joke but it also works on another level as like you know my face is my mask in the sense that I'm hiding how I'm actually feeling about everything and that like my real face is actually not what you see and I just I always loved like kind of the poeticism of that yeah um of that concept being put in the perspective of a hockey player who didn't yeah. wear a mask. Yeah. Um, so I always, I, I always love that. I always love that little turn. Um, I never was a huge fan of Sun in an Empty Room. And I okay. think part the reason why is because of what you said, that it's like it was a little too milk toast. Mm-hmm. It's a little death, a little death cabby. Like the lyrics are good, but they're not holy shit good. And it's just like it's something that I would hear on like a Death Cab album. Yeah. And if I wanted to hear that, I would listen to a Death Cab right. album. I wouldn't <laughs> listen to a Weaker Than's album. Um, so that was one. That, and and the funny thing is that, that was a song that I got the impression that a lot of fans really liked. Mm. And I was kind of off on like an island there where I didn't like it as mm. much. Um, and that was kind of the way I felt when the album came out. Like a lot of the reviews talked about how great that song was. I was like. Yeah, don't don't love it. As I mean, much. it's extremely like the radio song on that album for sure. Yeah. So I guess yeah. that you know kind of makes sense that a bunch of people would like it because you know yeah that that's yeah it it was definitely it's definitely catchy it's definitely poppy. Mm-hmm. Um, him and the medical oddity, as I said, that was probably one of like the my lower tier ones before, and I don't think I'll ever love it, but I certainly appreciate it more yeah. now than I did before. Yeah. Um, and then some of the songs at the end of the album, like Reunion Tour is okay, but it's short. Um, Bigfoot, I actually liked a lot more now than I think I did back then. Yeah, I like that song. Um, but that would probably be a low, yeah, that would be a little, maybe a little lower tier, but I, I, I probably when I was listening to it on Windows Media Player when I was in, uh, <laughs> when I was in high school, I probably had that as like a three-star song. And then going back through it today, I put it as a five-star song. So I like it a lot more. Um, but yeah, I, I would say... Uh, Sun and Empty Room is probably like my least favorite and then everything else I pretty much could listen to pretty easily cool cool well this was a this was a long one um, but hopefully we we kept your interest enough that you listened all the way through we are compelling um, Charles Kelly we tried it yes we our best. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly did you have uh, any any final thoughts on on this album or even the movie if you want to go back to it So, like, I know I've said this before, Charlie, but honestly, like, I love doing this show because, like, I'm honestly going to go listen to other Weaker Than albums because I'm genuinely curious to know what they sound like. And, like, I wouldn't have otherwise. So, like, thank you for opening my eyes to things because this is, like, a lot of fun and I always learn something and I'm glad that I do. Yeah, and kind of back at you with yeah. movies because, I mean, before we even started this, I didn't realize, like, I knew you liked movies. I didn't realize you really, really liked movies. And it's cool to get your perspective on the more artsy movies that I enjoy, but I certainly don't have the background that you do. Cool. So it's neat to hear you kind of run through, like, a Coen Brothers movie and talk about, you know, the, not even necessarily the more technical things, but just the the things that put into perspective what they were probably going Yeah. For. This is a fun show. Everybody should listen to this show. Other stuff. Other stuff. <laughs> we need to. It's it's stuff. Need, stuff is not hot. We need to get Albert <laughs> to write you like a jaunty intro, 
some other stuff yes. intro music <laughs> definitely definitely all right uh well that about does it so thanks to everyone for uh, for listening to another edition of other stuff and we will try to be back next week with bill but we'll see i don't know i might be too busy i hope i won't i won't be but i might be okay cool all right